ahead and get started. Thank y'all. I know this was a last-second adjustment. That was my fault uh, that we're in here today because Central has their homecoming uh, next door, which I think they're just finishing up uh, now. How many of y'all went over to the gym and were like, where, where am I right now? What, what is going on? <laughs> what happened to our church? Who, who are these people? So uh, we're very thankful to still be able to have Sunday school and to have it here. Uh, as you know by now, we're walking through the, the tulip, and this is our last week on the L uh, limited atonement, or perhaps better, particular redemption or effective atonement. And uh, we want to pray, and then we've got the last few things to cover here uh, this week. And Lord willing, we'll move to the I, which is irresistible grace, next week back in the gym. I always want to say Lord willing. <laughs> and um, that'll be more dealing with the doctrine of God's effectual call, or the effective call of, of God through the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about the general call of God and the effective call, and there's a lot of things to talk about uh, regarding that. But that'll be next week. And uh, in the meantime, uh, Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray in a, in a new way a deeper way, a more profound way that our hearts would be filled with joy and gratitude over what Jesus has done. He has actually accomplished our salvation through his death on the cross. It is certain, it is sure, and we are so thankful. Lord, I pray that our, our love for Christ would grow, our trust in Christ would grow, and also, Lord, our confidence to talk about him and to proclaim him as the one true and only hope for any sinner anywhere. God, because in his death, there is true, real, certain salvation for everyone who will believe. I pray, Lord, that we'd have much greater confidence in that, and that we would walk humbly before you. Lord, that as we go through uh, this series, we continue to go through it, God, may we be humbled and boast, as 1 Corinthians says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, you show us that we have no grounds for boasting in ourselves in any way when it comes to our salvation and redemption. We want to boast in Jesus alone. Help us do that more with glad and joyous hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to say another word here before we get into it. If you have a Bible, you can, you can open to Hebrews 2 just uh, to get ready. Hebrews 2. Because with, with, with topics like this, there's always almost, there's just so many things to cover and we can't get to everything in Sunday school. So this week I put out a few videos uh, online. If you want to look at them, uh, here's what they're about. They're basically, I'm going through a lot of the specific passages that people bring up. And to do this in Sunday school would take three or four extra weeks. And we didn't think that that was probably the best way to do that. So I just thought if anyone's curious about what about all the world texts or all the all texts, uh, I put out a few hours of content this week that are on our YouTube channel and on our podcast that you can look at if you want to get into the weeds of like, what about this passage? What about that passage? I tried to work through as many as I could. And uh, that way, uh, if, if it doesn't bother you, you can just not even worry about it. Isn't that nice? You can just move on and don't have to worry about it at all. But if you're curious, you can go back and look at some of that stuff. And to summarize, I've, uh, I think the slides will be working here today. If you can read this uh, on the screen. I want to summarize our argument so far because I think this issue of particular redemption is the most confusing and it's probably the most uh, misunderstood and probably most contested of the five points. Would you agree with that, Greg? Absolutely would, yeah. Okay, so, so just look here. Here's kind of a summary of what we've been trying to say. Number one, according to our argument, we, we would say numerous passages clearly say that Jesus was sent to earth to save uh, only and all of his elect people. 
And we looked at Jesus in John 6. It's on the screen there, the, the reference. I have come to do your will, Father, and your will is that I should lose nothing of all that you have given me, but raise it up on the last day. And in context, you'll end up finding out that's his sheep, his true people. So he's come on a mission to save all and only his sheep. Number two, this maintains unity of purpose between the members of the Trinity in salvation. The Father elects some, not all. The Spirit regenerates some, not all, or else all would be saved. And the, the Son died to effectively save some, that same group, not all. So uh, we believe that this maintains harmony amongst all members of the Trinity. Point number three, the meaning uh, of words like propitiation, ransom, or takes away sin. Just so you know, I'm thinking of text here. I'm thinking of things like this. He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He's the ransom for all. Or he, John 1, the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. We would argue that those words, propitiation, ransom, and takes away sin, etc., imply, that's what Greg was getting at in his prayer, it imply, they imply an actual atonement, not a potential one. So we're saying that when, when it says that Jesus propitiated sins, it doesn't mean potentially, but maybe not. <laughs> As in, you might reject Jesus, and then you might end up having to pay for your own sins in eternity. No, if Jesus propitiates, to propitiate means to remove wrath. And for him to atone for means to atone for. For him to ransom you means he bought you. You're his. There's no way his ransom's going to fall short of buying his own uh, or takes away sin. I mean, let's just stop for one second. J John 1, you know it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If world there means every single individual without exception, you have to redefine what takes away sin means. Unless you're a universalist who believes everyone goes to heaven. Because if he takes away sin, in what way is that sin actually taken away if someone is still paying for that sin in hell? So we would say the world there is referring to not just the Jewish world, but the Gentile world, all ty types and tongues and languages of people he's going to save. And the offer is, of course, for all. Can I make a, a yeah, please, please. on that? When we think about world passages too, um, I've read a number of, of thinkers who will say, when it talks about like takes away, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world or the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's like, look, there's only one way that anybody anywhere can receive salvation or forgiveness, and it's through Christ. So when he says for the whole world, he's simply making a statement. In addition to what you've said, what you've been saying is there's only one way that anyone in the world can receive, can get what we need, and that's in Christ. So when he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, that means there's not another propitiation. Mm -hmm. there, there's no other lamb out there who takes sin away. There's just Jesus. And if you, and again, this gets, ties into a whole, whole lot of other, other issues that we've been dealing with, but it's like, and, and then it gets to, well, how do you, how do you receive that? You got to have faith. Um, and obviously election comes in and other things as well. But it's, it's, it's just Jesus is the only way. His is the only only means by which any sinner can come back to God. So he's the savior of the world. Yeah, he's the only savior that is offered to the world, if that makes sense. That's exactly, yeah. I just think of Acts 4.12. Mm -hmm. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. That verse is not teaching, nor does anyone take it this way. That verse doesn't say that everyone under heaven will be saved by the name of Jesus. What does it say? 
There's only one name under heaven given whereby anyone could be saved, which is the name of Jesus. So the implication is, yes, but I have to trust in that name. Right. I, I, have mm-hmm. to put, I have to cast myself into, in, into the arms of Christ, and then, of course, he will save me. Uh, but uh, but um, that's not going to apply to every individual. It's only those who embrace him by faith, which is God's gift. Number four, Jesus, uh, and this is an emphasis we had in last Sunday and a little more today, Jesus intercedes for his elect only. Remember in uh, John chapter 11, uh, excuse me, John 17, I am not, remember this amazing verse, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. That's an amazing verse on the night before he dies. I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for those, Father, whom you have given me. And then what does he say in verse 20? And I'm praying for all those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus' intercessory prayer on the night before he dies is, is explicitly limited to believers, to the elect explicitly. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you've given me, for all who will believe in my name through their message. Jesus, so Sproul's argument is, if Jesus is interceding as a priest the night before he dies as a sacrifice, is he going to pray for a different group than he's going to effectively die for the next day? Do you see? That's a pretty strong argument. He explicitly only intercedes for his elect. The next day, I'm arguing he's going to die to effectively save his elect. The same group he effectively prays for is the same group that he effectively atones for. So in the Old Testament, we'll talk about this more in Hebrews today. In the Old Testament, the priest, as you've seen before last week, intercedes, uh, intercedes and atones. I'm erasing my own writing here. Intercedes and atones for the same group, uh, God's chosen covenant people. Uh, does Jesus die for all in the same way, but only intercede for the elect, thus dividing the work of the priest? We would say no. Now, here's the fifth argument. We got six. Here's the fifth one. The new covenant promises were purchased by Christ's blood. Remember in Luke 22 at at the Last Supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So in other words, with my blood, I'm buying the new covenant, right? That's I'm purchasing it with my blood. Does that make sense? I'm buying the new covenant. And then when we looked at Ezekiel, you, you looked at uh, Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, 36 yep. and Jeremiah 31, mm-hmm. 32. Yeah. When you look at the new covenant, remember, the new covenant is amazing. Greg, what, what makes the new covenant promises in particular so uh, relevant here? Because I will give you a new... I'll give you a new heart. Um, but he also talks about, I'll put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my way, cause you to obey my rules. You know, Jeremiah 31 talks about... Uh, I, instead of in opposition to the old covenant, which was written on tablets of stone outside of us, the new covenant is going to be written on the tablet of our heart. Um, and so instead of just exerting an external pressure that really can't do anything, the new covenant promises not only are you going to know what God's law is, you're going to have both the desire and the ability to obey it because it's not outside of you, it's now in you. And so your very desires are going to be to keep God's law. Now, obviously, that doesn't, and we'll talk more about this when we get to perseverance, it doesn't mean sin is gone, that we don't have struggles, that we're not fighting sin on a daily basis and contrary desires. But one of the hallmarks of a genuine believer, because of the new covenant, is we actually want to please God. We want to do what pleases Him. We want to keep His law. We want to walk in His ways from the heart. Um, And again, that is something that is a sovereign work of God. And if, the, if that is the new covenant promise, then if Jesus is purchasing that with his blood, then everyone for whom he purchases that is going to receive it. Every single one without fail. Um, and so again, we're back to what you've said many times. Either we have to redefine what we mean by purchase and even new covenant or we say everyone everywhere is going to be saved. And scripture nowhere teaches universalism. 
And so it gets back to the, it keeps coming back to some of the same key issues, but the new covenant is clear. But I don't want to move on from what you're saying here yeah. for a second. Just one more second on this. Just follow this one more time. It's a simple point, but it's really important. You see what Greg's getting at? The new covenant promises are, now this is so important. The new covenant promises are that God gives you the desire to follow him. That's what the new covenant promises. I'm going to give you a new heart, write the law in your heart. Mm-hmm. He says, make you walk in my statutes. In other words, the new covenant is God changing our heart. That is the new covenant. Now here's the question. That means regeneration is the gift that Jesus bought when he bought the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, who, who, who gets that gift? The answer is every single person who is born again receives that gift. And, the, and you say, well, yeah, well, what's going on? Jesus did not purchase that gift for every individual on earth or everyone would be what? Born again. So the, the, the new covenant promises are about making us willing, ma- making us trusting, making us yeah. desire God. And that is something he clearly only gives to his own. And that's what makes us willing to believe. Thoughts, uh, comment on that? Well, I, wanna, I don't want to preempt next week, but I want to say this, so maybe we'll remember to, to do this. Some people have a view that regenerate, like there's like a halfway regeneration. Like right. God brings you enough out of your sin to where you're kind of at the point Adam and Eve were, you know, where you can say yes or no. You get kind of brought to this neutral position and, you know, that sounds great. The only problem is nothing in Scripture teaches that. Like, you, you, it is not anywhere taught. It's assumed because if Jesus died for everyone and, every, you know, everyone's got to have that chance and everyone must also have that, that ability. And it's like the Bible does not teach that. It just doesn't teach a halfway regeneration. You're either regenerated or you're not. You're either born again or you're not. And if you're born again, you will believe. If you're not born again, you won't believe. I mean, it's, it's that clear and that simple in Scripture, um, and we have to be willing to submit ourselves to something that's that clear, even if it's hard. No, I agree. Okay, so uh, number six, and these are mainly the videos I made this past week was dealing with a lot of these specific texts. The words in Greek for all, pos, all people, pos anthropos, and world, cosmos, often do not refer to all without exception. And I, I show in these videos, these words have various meanings, often meaning some of every kind. I, I can't tell you how many times those words are used in the New Testament to refer to some of every kind. When it says Jesus healed pos, all diseases, it doesn't mean he healed every disease on earth. It means he healed all kinds of diseases, right? And on and on and on. When, when, when Jesus tells Paul in Acts 22, you will proclaim my gospel to pos, anthropos, all people, he doesn't mean Paul is going to personally share the gospel with every human on earth. He means what? Paul's going to share the, people, the gospel with all kinds of people, Gentiles as well as Jews, and on and on and on. So these words, we, we assume they mean every single person. Mm-hmm. But is that actually true in the Greek New Testament? It, they can mean that, but they often do not mean that. And so the question is, what does the context tell us? That's the question. And as you work through these texts one by one, I don't think the context leans the way it's often presented. Uh, so let me finish this quote here. In their context, as we've seen, The texts used most often for, quote, universal atonement or unlimited atonement most naturally mean all kinds rather than every one. Uh, This also harmonizes well with points one through five that we just looked at. So you see how when you bring all the data together, I really do think there's a compelling argument here uh, for for particular redemption. Can I make a a comment on the all too? Um, I'm not, I was trying to find it real quick. I'd have to go back and look. Um, But it talks about like when John the Baptist too was preaching, it says like all Jerusalem came out to hear him. Right. Does that mean every single all person? The world, all the world has gone after him and all Jerusalem. That's right. There's two different yeah. texts like and that. And so like all, all of Jerusalem, that means every single person in Jerusalem went out to hear John the Baptist. 
No, it doesn't mean that. It just means, man, it was a large, big group of people from the city went there. I mean, we like when I play, you know, small town football, like football's everything where I come from. Like there's other sports, but it's football and Baxley. And it's like, you talk about, you have a big game. The whole town showed up. Literally all 5,000 plus people in Baxley showed up or all 15,000 athletes. No, we're not saying every single person without exception was there. We're saying like a massive representation of who lives there. So we use that kind of limited all language and whole everybody language every day if we think about it. And we don't say, nope, nope, you're being inaccurate. Nope, if you, if you admit every, yeah, like we don't do that with everyday language. Why are we gonna make the Bible do things we ourselves don't do uh, with everyday use? And just, I got confused. You were right. Your example is exactly right. I was thinking of a different example yeah. where later in John 12, remember they say the Pharisees are jealous of Jesus, Caiaphas and the others. And what do they say? The whole cosmos, the whole world has gone after him. That's not even close to literal. And it says, they're talking about a few thousand people, but they use the word world to describe a few thousand, like a crowd of 20,000. But they're not clearly referring to every individual in Africa has gone after Jesus at that moment. No, they're they're meaning a large group of people has gone after him. And they use the word world. Mm -hmm. So world has a very um, uh, different definition depending on the verse. Now, I want to boil it all down. So try to keep things simple here as we start today. These two statements, I think, boil down what we're trying to say. And these two statements are not at odds. I believe they're both true. So here here are the two statements. Number one, we keep saying it. Jesus died for sinners in such a way that all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ will be forgiven. We believe that with all of our heart, nothing we're saying in any way minimizes that statement. You present the gospel to anybody because anybody you talk to could be someone who will trust in Christ, and we urge and plead. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I beg you, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay? The same man who wrote Romans 9 begged people to become Christians. He begged them. He implored them to become Christians. We should, we should be unembarrassed to implore people, pray, plead with people to trust Christ. And then the second statement is also true, I think. Jesus died with the intention of securing the salvation of his elect, his bride, his sheep, his church, not all without exception. He did not die with the intention of securing the salvation of every single person. He died with the intention of securing the salvation only of his elect, his bride, his sheep, his church. Now, I know that there could feel tension between those two statements. I don't think there's any contradiction at all between those two statements. And listen, here's what we got to be. We've got to be people. If you're, if you're convinced of what we're trying to say, and if you're still wrestling with this, please keep wrestling, pray, read your Bible. It's a process to work through these things. They're complicated. It takes time. But if, if, you're, if you're in general agreement with what we're saying, please don't ever sacrifice one of those statements for the other one. I think that's the worst thing you can do is say, I want to invite everybody to Christ. Therefore, I don't believe in election. That's not biblical. Or to say, I believe in election, so I'm not going to invite everybody I know to Christ. I'm not going to pray for everybody to come to... No, we, we do both. And if there feels to be tension here, we just rest that in God's mind, those two statements are in perfect harmony, and I don't see any direct contradiction between them, but they do often make us lean one way or another, and we want to embrace both sides of, of the truth of these things. Thoughts about those two realities? Well, it goes back to something, I know, I think I've mentioned this before. I remember hearing John MacArthur say this, and it was, it was so helpful. I mean, if you, you want to find somebody, you're not going to find somebody stronger on, on what we're talking about right now than MacArthur. I mean, he is very clear where he stands, what he believes Scripture says. But, you know, I heard him preaching, um, or it was some kind of uh, interview he was given. He was talking about, you know, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And it's like, you know, oftentimes the Bible will just present both at the same time, and it's not interested in trying to figure out 
how they how those two things reconcile supposedly it's like it affirms both and it's like if the text is emphasis and this also drawn from john piper if the text is emphasizing god's sovereignty emphasize god's sovereignty if it's emphasizing our responsibility emphasize our responsibility like i think we not that not that we i mean obviously you 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 know we we care about how we piece these things together but we have to be comfortable with an element of for lack of a better word an element of mystery when it comes to this like it's it's beyond our limited human ability to fully grasp how all these things connect mm-hmm. like we we know they do and and we see and scripture affirms these things and you know and we obviously believe like the 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 sovereignty of God, limited atonement, all that. Like we obviously believe Scripture is clear on that. But when you, if you, you see, man, okay, God did this, but we're still responsible. And you say, how? If, if you can't reconcile that, that's okay. Join the club if you can't yeah, fully I mean, understand it, like, it. Be, be used to that in the Christian life. There's going to be some things where it's like Scripture clearly teaches this. It also clearly teaches this. One doesn't cancel each the other one out. One doesn't minimize or mute the other one. Okay. We've just got to get the point. All right, look, I'm going to preach it and teach it as faithfully as I can and, you know, trust that maybe when I get to heaven, God's going to help me see things that I can't see right now. And I totally agree. But let, let, me, let me say one more thing here about that. Boiling the whole issue down, again, I'm trying to, make these th- I'm trying to get this down to simple, basic ideas here. Boiling it all down, here's a question that you've got to answer and how you answer it actually does have practical ramifications yes. for how you worship and how you think about your conversion. So, so, okay, I know, I know y'all have heard this before from us, but I just want to say it again. This is so central to this whole debate. At the, at the fundamental bottom of the debate, this is the, the wa- you know, watershed where on a mountain, if all the water goes this way, it goes to this ocean. And if it goes on this side, it goes to this ocean. It splits everything. This is the watershed moment. How you answer this question is a watershed question, and it will fundamentally change some of how you view these issues. So here's the question. If you're a believer in Jesus, everybody knows you put your faith in Christ. Right, we're not denying that. You believe. God doesn't believe for you. You believe. You exercise your will. You believe. We should all agree with that. Number two, do we also believe that God shows us in Christ? Those are both taught, right? Now, here's the question. Is the fundamental decisive reason why you chose to believe in Jesus, is the fundamentally decisive reason why you chose to believe in Jesus, your will making the right decision with God's help, or is the fundamentally decisive reason you chose Christ because God sovereignly intervened and gave you a new heart? So in other words, you might say, well, God gave me help. Okay, what if you have a brother who's not a believer or a sister, and you grew up in the same church, right? You heard the same sermons. You heard the same preacher every week. You had the same youth pastor as a kid. You had the same family devotions with your parents, right, after dinner. You, you, you had all the same circumstances. God gave you the same basic life, like side by side. You went to the same school, same church, right? Heard the same gospel preached. And your brother today is maybe an adult unbeliever, and you are a believer. You've got to either say that the fundamental decisive reason is because God gave you both provenient grace, but you made a better decision than your brother did, and that's why you're a Christian and he's not. That's the free will answer. Or you have to say, If it wasn't for God's grace, I would still be an unbeliever. God, by his sovereign, mysterious uh, intervention, came into my life and granted me the faith to believe. I would never have chosen Christ had he not first chosen me. Had God not worked in my heart, I would never be a believer. It is all by God's grace alone, and I don't look self-righteously on my brother because I was my brother. I am my brother. Apart from God's grace, I'd be in the same state. That's what you have to say, right, Whatever, whatever it may be. So fundamentally, is it my decision with God's help 
That's, that's why I'm a Christian. Or is it fundamentally decisively God's decision that brought about my conversion? And, and you've got to see how you answer those two things really do change how you pray, change how you praise God for your new birth, change how you think about why you're a believer in the first place. And I think that's why this issue matters so much. That is a special thing. To know that God sovereignly chose you and that's why you're a believer is a cause of great worship in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, we're, we're, we're going to skip through some verses here relatively quickly, but at the very last verse of the chapter, it says, therefore, uh, second to last verse, excuse me, uh, 2.17 of Hebrews, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, now remember, he's, he's being a priest here, he's, he's a high priest, and he's, what's he doing? He's making propitiation for who? Propitiation for who? The sins of the people. This is God's people. So let's turn to Hebrews 7, and we want to build towards something here for a second. We're going to skip. We can't read all the verses. But we're going to move pretty quickly. Look at Hebrews 7, down at verse, we'll start in verse 21, middle of a sentence. It says, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So again, you see here that when Jesus bought the covenant, he is, it's a sure thing. He's the guarantor of this covenant for those for whom he died. Look at verse uh, 24, same chapter. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for who? For them. That is the people who draw near to him. That is his covenant people, the true people of God. He's interceding uh, for them. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we, again, the covenant people is the we here, that we should have such a high priest. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, the covenant people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Just follow me briefly here. Chapter 8, verse uh, 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. Skip to verse 10. Talk about the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. That's the covenant people. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they, the covenant people, will be uh, my people. So you see here again, is Christ the priest of a specific group? And is he purchasing a specific group with propitiation? And is he moving toward interceding for a specific group? And who is he going to give uh, uh, the, the law on their heart and mind? It's a specific group. It's my people. So it, it, Greg, Greg, any thoughts here as we start to see the, the specificity of, of the intercession and propitiation aimed at the covenant people here? I mean, just re- reviewing what we've said already about this, like there's an inseparable connection. And like we, ha- we have to remind ourselves of that. Uh, Old Testament and New, there's an inseparable connection inseparable connection between those whom atonement is made for and those who receive the intercession based on the atonement. And so anytime the New Testament talks about Christ interceding for his people, um, like it's also assuming that he's going to pray for them. Right. Um, and so in, in drawing, drawing that attention then to the we, the we, who is the we? Um, if it's everybody, again, every single person will be saved because Jesus never, his intercession never falls to the ground. It never fails. Uh, it's never ineffective. Every single person he prays for receives absolutely every benefit of his prayer. 
So when we see this, as Mark was pointing out, the, who the people are and the we and the them and their God, like that cannot mean every single person. Uh, it has to mean the elect. Okay, so just, just stick with us here. You don't, you don't have to turn to these verses. They're in Leviticus. I'll put it on the screen. Uh, Carl Truman did a good job explaining this. You know the Day of Atonement, right? Uh, so so just, just listen to a couple of verses here and listen to how this worked in the Old Testament. This is Leviticus 16, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering uh, that is for the people. So you got the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall, and here's it again, make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of... Now, who is this atonement for? Is it for everyone in the world? No, it's for the people of Israel. It's a limited atonement, right? It's a particular redemption. Because, and because of their transgressions and all their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement. Now, unlike Jesus, he has to make atonement for himself because he's sinful and for his house and for what? All the assembly of Israel. So th this is, a, is this an effective atonement? Yes, it makes, it's an effective for the whole covenant people. I'm not saying, this is a big footnote, I'm not saying every single Israelite was saved. That's not even part of what I'm trying to argue here. What I'm saying is uh, he's doing this for the entire representative people. He's doing this for the whole covenant people. Okay, this is going to risk getting too technical right now, but just, just, this is one of the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant people included unbelieving Israelites, but in the new covenant, every single covenant member is a believer, because it said, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, and I will forgive all their sins. That's what God is solving with the new covenant, is every true covenant member in the new covenant is a genuine believer, a born-again person, right? Now, do you see that? Now, here's why that's significant. The Old Testament priests made atonement for the covenant people. That does not mean every single Israelite was saved. They weren't. We know the majority were lost, sadly, right? But in the new covenant, this is the difference. When Jesus comes to be the guarantor of the new covenant, how many people are lost in the new covenant? Zero, okay? So that argument does not work to undermine this point. No, 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 no. Jesus, that's the whole point. The new covenant is way better than the old covenant. The New Testament says so. Hebrews says it's a better covenant because it's on better promises. And what are the better promises? Every new covenant member is a believer. So Jesus is not gonna, he's gonna make a particular atonement for the covenant people, but no one's gonna fall through the cracks like in the old covenant. Every single new covenant member is born again. That's an amazing thought. Oh, absolutely. So, so one more thing in, in Leviticus, and, and Greg, I'll, I wanna hear from you here too. Look at verse 21. And Aaron shall lay, now this is the scapegoat. This is powerful. Aaron shall lay both his hands, this is amazing, on the head of the live goat and confess over it, look, all the iniquities of who? The Philistines? The Egyptians, the, the Midianites, no, who's he confess? He confesses it's a particular redemption. It's a limited atonement. He says only the sins and all the sins of Israel are being put on the head of the, past, of the scapegoat. And look, all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them, the specific sins of the covenant people right there, on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities. That's the covenant people on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And here's what Carl Truman, we like Carl Truman around here, but here's what Carl Truman says. He says, what is remarkable about this passage is the particularity of the action. The goat is sacrificed specifically and only for the sins of the people of Israel. 
This is not a sacrifice performed by the priesthood in the context of the worship of Israel for the sins of the wider world. The scope of the action is restricted to God's people, the people of Israel. It is not aimed at others, and in this particularity is closely linked to its effectiveness, its efficacy. These are not the sins of the Egyptians. He lists a whole bunch. The Egyptians, the Midianites, or the rest of the world. The sins placed under the head of the goat, then driven out into the wilderness, are only the sins of the people of uh, Israel. And then he says, finally, again, the intimate connection between particularity or limitation and effectiveness is obvious. And that's what we're arguing for. So, So again, thoughts on the connection between limitation of scope and effectiveness of atonement. Those two things we see here with, with, with the scapegoat. Well, I mean, it's, it's as clear as it can be. Like, it was absolutely effective for every person it was intended for. Um, if it was not intended for you, it didn't do anything for you. Like, you received no benefit, um, no forgiveness, no atonement, no anything. Um, and, I mean, I, I feel like we're beating this drum, but I feel like this one has to be beat repeatedly. Um, because we are so prone to, to not want to listen to Scripture on this. And I'm not trying to say that like as a, a jab at anyone, but th- this is language that pushes us outside what we typically want to believe about Jesus' death. And it's like, no, His death was specifically for His covenant people. Um, and it was, He intended to save His covenant people, and it's not going to save anyone other than His covenant people. Um, and I mean, it's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. Um, and, and just if, if you like kind of like, um, you know, linguistic, exegetical backgrounds, um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, the word there, let's see, in, um, in verse 15 for mercy seat is, is the same root word that we get propitiation from in the New Testament. If you go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's going to have that same word family in use here. Um, to make atonement is a, is a verbal form of the same word. Um, and so that just even further says, look, the New Testament, Paul, others, they're not making this up. They're getting their language, even, even the very words they're using, they're pulling out of the Old Testament and using them the way the Old Testament used them to make their point about mm-hmm. Jesus and his death. I mean, they, they are rooting. I mean, because remember, the, the New Testament, like the authors, they knew the Greek translation. A lot of the quotations in the New Testament are from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And so that word, the, the word for propitiation that we're used to in, in the New Testament, that's the word group they, they worked from when they developed their understanding and they explained Jesus's death. They're, it's rooted in Leviticus 16 and a whole lot of other places and again, they're not teaching something new. They're saying, look, this is for the covenant people um, and the covenant people only. And j- just here's an experiment. I did this myself, and so I recommend it to you. Just take a pencil and, and uh, sit down with the Bible, if you're okay writing in the Bible, uh, if you're, your copy of the Bible. J- just read through Hebrews 7 to 10, just on your own time. doesn't take long. Read through Hebrews 7 to 10. That's what I did. And I just underlined every time we're told who Jesus is coming to save, who he's atoning for, who he's interceding for. It blew me away. I had never done this before. Just Hebrews 7 to 10 is all about Jesus being a better priest like Melchizedek. Just read through it. And and I'm going to get, okay, at the risk of putting some of you to sleep here, okay, this is going to go through a lot of verses here real quick. Look with me at Hebrews 9, and I'm going to show you some of the things I just found doing this. It's a very simple exercise. I'm going to skip around really quick. So just follow me here. You can look at the screen, look at your Bible. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. I'm going to leave out some words for the sake of time. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, 
Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, skipping words, by means of his own blood, thus doing what? Securing an eternal redemption. Do you see where we're getting the phrase effective atonement? A secured redemption? Okay, verse 14, middle of the verse. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, as we've been talking about, so that who's going to receive the promised eternal inheritance? Those who are called. That's God's sovereign call to salvation we're going to talk about next Sunday, the sovereign call. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has, has occurred. So why did Jesus die right here? To redeem them. That is the same group of those who are called. So th- that's the same group. Those who are called are those who are uh, redeemed. And that's a specific group, the, co- the new covenant people. Uh, look at verse 19. Moses, skipping ahead, took the blood of calves and goats, skipping ahead again, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. That's the covenant people. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So again, the blood is for the covenant people. Verse 24, Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Skipping ahead, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to, oh, look at this, bear the sins of who? Many. To bear the sins of many, the elect people, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save who? Who's he intending to die for and save? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's only the born-again believer. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually, continually offered year by year, make perfect who? Those who draw near. That's the covenant people. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, that's the people, have once, have, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Into verse 9. Then he added, behold, I have come, this is, we're down at verse 9, I have come to do your will. So what is God's will for Jesus to do? And by that will... What? We have been sanctified. That's the covenant people through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single offering for sins, whose sins? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. So it's not for his enemies. You see that? Because his enemies are going to be a footstool. Uh, Those who ultimately are not God's people. They're going to be made a footstool. Verse 14. But by, by a single offering, he has what? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's God's true people there. I'm going to go just a little longer. I know this is, can be tiresome, but let's keep going. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for, a, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts. I will write it on their minds. Verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the covenant people. And let's just skip to the end of the chapter. There's a lot more I'm skipping right now, but just go to the very end of chapter 10. Look at verse 30. The Lord will judge his people. Verse, excuse me, verse 39. Very end of the chapter. Verse 39. Here's what he says. Who's the we in this chapter? But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Who's the we? We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the we that's referred to over and over again is the true people of God who don't shrink back to destruction, but have faith and preserve their souls. Any comments on this? I just think it's amazing how Hebrews is picking up with Leviticus, and it's, it's teaching the same thing, but with, a, with the new covenant people in mind. It's, it's not necessarily a content, 
comment, but it's more a, a method in terms of um, the method here. Um, if anything pushes us to read more than just a verse at a time or cherry pick a verse here and there, it's these kinds of things. Um, we the, the God did not give us you know, a whole book of Proverbs to where each individual verse completely stands on its own, isolated from everything else with a nice little, you know, bit of wisdom for life. You know, God, God gave us the book of Hebrews in, in a sermonic letter of sorts. Um, and so you have to read it in that way. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just pick, oh, that says all. That means, you know, it's like, no, how is he using it based on the context of what he's saying? So this pushes us to... to read everything in context to read more than one verse at a time. You know, you mentioned that, that, old, that good old statement, you know, a, a verse without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Yep. It's like, um, you did that in your, your video, not today, right, right, right. Uh, which I do recommend watching those. Um, Five but, bucks, Greg. Thanks. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so like we're, we're going through this and the point of what Mark's doing is like, you know, this isn't just a nice idea. Like, man, we, you know, we, we're trying to make the Bible say this. No, we're pointing these things out so you can see, that, like, the Bible is what is directing us to say what we're directing. As much as we're able to submit to this, um, I mean, boom, 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 piece after piece after piece after piece, like, it's clear what he's talking about. And we, we, we texted back and forth a little bit about this. You, you had shared some great thoughts. Like, you know, th- this can be hard to, to get on board with if, if this is not what you're used to. Oh, man. It, it can be very hard. Even if you can say, you know, it really seems like what they're saying is right. I just have a really hard time with that. Um, one of the best ways to, to help anyone, help yourself, what I do, is, is keep going back and reading it the right way. Read Scripture the way it's given. Read it in context. Read longer chunks at a time. And inevitably, if you do that, by God's grace, you'll see what it's saying and it will help you overcome reluctance to embrace doctrines like this. Because again, you can hear this as clearly and we could answer every single objection, but sometimes we still have that reluctance in our hearts. Well, that's just not what I was used to thinking about Jesus and his death. And I just don't know, uh, you know, keep reading scripture the right way. And over time, God will sanctify you through, through, through exegesis, exegetical right. sanctification. If you want to have a phrase there, you just read Scripture the way you're supposed to. God will shape how you think and how you feel when we read Scripture rightly. That's a great point. And so I've got about five and a half minutes, okay? And uh, there's one big text we have never addressed so far. I think it's probably the strongest single text against our position. We saved it for the last five minutes. So turn with us to 2 Peter to your right, 2 Peter chapter 2, right near the end of your New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2. It's probably the most frequently, one of the most frequently quoted verses against our position. The question is, did Jesus buy those who eventually fall away and apostatize from the Christian faith? I don't want to, I don't want to misuse this verse. I don't think scripture contradicts itself, but I want to offer you a proposal for what this verse might mean. So look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Oh my, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So these people are headed towards destruction, but it says that Jesus bought them or the master bought them. That seems to completely destroy limited atonement. It sounds like Jesus bought these people and they end up rejecting him and they end up perishing. And I grant you, at least reading it quickly, it can look that way. But I want to offer you in context that it's not quite as simple as it may seem. Skip down to verse 19 because these false teachers, 
before you look at that, you notice it says the false teachers are among you on the screen. See among you right there. These are people who were part of the church. They said they were Christians. They looked like Christians and they ended up being not Christians. Okay. We've all known people tragically where this has happened. Look at verse 15 first. Describing these false teachers, it says they forsook the right way and they've gone astray, which means it used to look like they were on the right path. Now, let's, let's, if someone was never truly converted, but their outward life conformed to a pattern of religion and they looked like real Christians, but they were never truly born again, does it look like they were walking on the right path? Yeah, it looked like it, but was it true? Were they actually on the right path? No. So, so look, look at this verse 19. They, this is the false teachers, they promise them, their listeners, freedom, but they themselves, the, the false teachers, are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Now look at verse 20. This is crucial. For if after they, the false teachers, have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them, the false teachers, never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that was delivered to them. Now just look at the screen for a moment here. If these people were never truly born again, which I think is true, had they ever truly escaped the defilements of the world? Truly, in their heart of hearts? No, but had they looked like it? Yes. Had they ever truly known our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? No, but did it look like it? Yes. Had they ever known truly in their heart of hearts the way of righteousness? No, but did it look like it? Yes. And so look at verse 22. This confirms that they were never truly saved. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog, this is gross, returns to its own vomit, and the sow, the female pig, after washing herself, does what? Returns to wallow in the mire. Okay, now look. Had the female pig been a female pig the whole time? Had the sow been a sow the whole time? But you can clean a pig up, right? You can make a clean, a clean pig. You can make it look nice. But is its nature still in love with the mud? Yes. So outwardly, the, the pig was cleaned up. Inwardly, had there been any change of nature? No. And so they went back to the mud where their nature really wanted to be. So here's what I would call the phenomenological view. That's a big fancy word. This is what I mean. Peter is not speaking of what was literally spiritually true of these individuals. He's speaking of what appeared to be true of these individuals. They appeared to know the Lord. They appeared to be on the way of righteousness. They appeared to have escaped the defilements of the world. And they appeared and claimed to have been bought by Jesus. But when they ended up renouncing their faith, what do we find out? They didn't truly know the Lord. They weren't truly on the path of righteousness. Christ had not truly bought them. He was not truly their master. And he's using this kind of ironic way of speaking here. So here's Tom Schreiner. I'm almost done. Peter's language is phenomenological. That is according to appearance. In other words, it appeared as if the Lord had purchased the false teachers. Similarly, the false teachers gave every appearance of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and appeared to have known the righteous saving way. They seemed to be part of the redeemed community, but their apostasy demonstrated that they never truly belonged to God's people. Furthermore, Peter's use of phenomenological language makes sense for the false teachers were vitally involved in the church. They were among us. It was not as if the outsiders uh, never claimed to be Christians. Uh, then they arrived and began to propagate teaching contrary to the gospel. On the contrary, the false teachers were insiders who departed from what, they were, from what they first taught. Hence, Peter underscores the gravity of what occurred. A little bit more. Those who were fomenting the false way were, so to speak, Christians. They looked like it. They were to all appearances bought by Christ and seemed to know him as Lord and Savior. Peter is not claiming that they were actually Christians, that they were truly redeemed, or that they truly knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, but that they gave, here it is, they gave every reason initially 
for observers to think that such was the case. Their subsequent departure showed that they were actually dogs and pigs. In other words, they were never truly changed and thus eventually revealed their true nature. So I know that's a tough text, but I think that's the best take that I, in my opinion, on how to interpret it. And uh, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to study these things at some length over these past few weeks. I pray that as we go further that you'd continue to help us see what is in your word. Uh, Keep all of us, certainly uh, myself included, from deception on this. I pray that we would see what is true in your word, make us humble before it, and help all of us to be teachable and open to correction according to your word. And I pray you'd be honored in the service in just a few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.